I want to get into the Word tonight. How many love the Word of God? See, the Word and the Spirit, they're like different halves of our body, right? Think of one half of your body being built up and strong, and you can bench press 400 pounds with one arm, right? And then think of the other half of your body looking like an emaciated person that hasn't eaten a day in their life, right? That is the Word without the Spirit or the Spirit without the Word. We need the Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit is the balanced breakfast that God would have us eat. Can we say amen? So I want to unpack some things to you tonight. And again, it's such an honor to be here. And I'm really, really grateful for kingdom relationships. I'm not looking for the platform. I'm not looking for the microphone. I'm looking for kingdom connections. I'm looking for brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is what I feel the Lord has, has given me in Paul and also in Jeremiah. Aren't you excited to hear Jeremiah tomorrow and the next day? What an amazing man of God he is. But 2 Samuel 3.1 says this, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now, I want to unpack this for us. We are in a transitional generation. I want you to say that with me, transitional generation. I, I'm going to ask you to say things at certain points throughout the message, not because I'm on some ego trip and want to hear myself repeated, but because you remember what you say a whole lot better than what you hear. Okay, and so I want you to remember that phrase, transitional generation. And if you're one or 100 in this place tonight, you are a part of that transitional generation. And we are living in a time that is unlike all the millennia that has come before us. And let me tell you the chief prophetic signpost that makes that a true statement. In 1948, a shofar sounded in the spirit. And out of the ashes of the Holocaust, out of the ashes of what they call the Shoah, the Jewish people call the Holocaust the Shoah. It's a play on their word for hell. Okay, out of the ashes of the Holocaust, God blew a shofar in the spirit. It wasn't the vote of the United Nations. It was the call of God. And he called his literal people back to their literal land. And Amos 9 and 11 was fulfilled in our day and in our time. And so we know that we are in the season of Amos 9 11 in the earth. And it's been 70 plus years since 1948. But we are in the season where the house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker, and the house of David is growing stronger and stronger. David is the house of one thing, the presence of God, the flame of the Lord, Leviticus chapter 6, the fire must be kept burning on the altar. It must never go out. That was in the tabernacle of David, the tabernacle of Moses, the one that led them through the wilderness, the one that led them through the desert, the living flame of the Lord. And it was the priority of the nation at the time of David that he employed thousands of musicians. They weren't volunteers in the temple in the tabernacle of David. David. They were master singers and master musicians that actually the king employed them. It would be like if the president of the United States said, okay, I'm starting a new department. President Trump started the, the Space Force, right? But what if the president started something like the Tabernacle of David Force, right? And employed thousands of people to do nothing but sing and worship and praise the Lord. That's the picture I want you to see. So it was a national priority 
the flame of the Lord was a national priority in the tabernacle of David. And we are in that season. And in that season, God is dealing with wine and wineskins. He's dealing with systems and structures. He's getting us away from the house of Saul, which is a man-made, man-appointed, man-pleasing system that doesn't please the Lord to the house of David that is a heart after God's own heart, a heart where the flame of the Lord is burning continually before the presence, not a house that is fueled by man-made systems, but a house that is fueled by intimacy. And so in the tabernacle of David, it's all about wine and wineskins. And so I want you to look over to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, 14 to 17. And it says this, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? They're coming to Jesus, the disciples of John, that was the one that declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one that Jesus spoke of and said, if you have faith to receive it, this is Elijah that was come again. And so the disciples of John come to Jesus and they basically are asking him, why don't you do it how we do it? Why aren't you doing it the way that we're doing it? Why isn't your structure and system look like our structure and system and also that of the Pharisees? Now, the disciples of John, and John himself was an Essene. John would have been a son of light. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the desert region of Israel called Qumran, and they unearthed an entire community called the Sons of Light or the Essenes. John the Baptist historically would have been a son of light or an Essene from that region near the Dead Sea in in the south of Israel. And so John comes forth from the desert and he starts baptizing and there's a revolution in the midst of the people of God and of the people of Israel. There's culture changing, shifting things happening through the ministry of John. And so Jesus comes on the scene and John declares of him the truth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. But then Jesus doesn't conduct himself exactly like John and like the Pharisees. So they come to him and they say what is with this what is with the structure what is with this system why don't you fast why don't you do it like we always have done it and Jesus said to him can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse no nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins will break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. I want to tell you what the new wineskin of God looks like in this era, a family. That's what the new wineskin of God looks like in this era. It is a family that stewards, that births, stewards, and sustains the move of God, births, stewards, and sustains the move of God. And I want to give you five indicators and keys tonight of this new wineskin family. Remember what I said, it's not a pyramid structure any longer. 
God blessed that in many ways in the past where there was one person at the top and everybody's function and purpose was to serve that one person at the top and make that one person at the top great. That's not how it is in this era that we are living in. In fact, that's not how it was at even the time of Christ. Jesus came and he pulled people to himself. He discipled people. He gave his life away to them. He gave us the example where literally he got down as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and washed their feet. He gave us the example of a servant. He didn't give us the example of a CEO. And God wants to transition the leadership and the government and the structure of the church from that of a business and a CEO to that of servants and that of a family where everybody has a place and they know that place is equal in value but different in function than the person that is next to them. Do you know you can't do what I can do? But I can't do what you can do. See, you're unique and I'm unique. I am needed and you are needed. It's the, the analogy in the Bible that says the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the knee, I don't need you. But for so long in the body of Christ, we have venerated and in many ways idolized people with one of these. And we've left everybody else out there to listen and to build up this and to make this great and to keep their butts in the seats and to keep the money in the plates and to keep the machine of ministry going and God has said I am done with the machine of ministry I am done with it it's like the Titanic it was amazing it was big it floated away and then it hit an iceberg and, and sank we sank like 50 years ago we just didn't know it but God is getting us away from a CEO business mentality and getting us back to organic. It's not institutionalized religion. It is organic community where life is built upon life. Living stone is built upon living stone. And each and every one of us have a vital place to play in the kingdom of God as his, as his word and will unfolds, okay? So that's the first key, organic, not institutional. And I'm going to define all of these. Number two it's fueled by genuine encounter fueled by genuine encounter number three is intimacy over productivity intimacy over productivity number four is the supremacy of Christ nothing held higher in value the supremacy of Christ and number five is keeping the edge not finding the comfort zone so organic, not institutional. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want to paint this picture for you. In the government of ancient Israel, there were 120 leaders, elders. In the current government of the Knesset, which is the seat of government in Israel, there are 120 Knesset members in that government. When God was ready to birth a new government in the earth, 120 gathered in the upper room. Because God was birthing a new government in the earth, something new in the earth. And so they're gathered here. They're gathered in unity. They're gathered in one accord, not a Honda, but they're gathered in unity. They're gathered in one accord. And suddenly there's a sound. Now we know a sound. We heard a sound tonight. And I love, Taylor, that you didn't just sing songs. You released a sound. 
That is something else that we've got to get right in this generation. We've got to release a sound when we gather together. See, when we gather together, we are the ecclesia. We are the gathered governing body of Messiah. We can legislate things in our region, but that gathering of the ecclesia doesn't just have a word sound. It has a sound sound. How many know what I'm saying? There is a sound that is released from the people of God. And sometimes words actually fail us. I loved what Taylor did. She sang short phrases that everybody could sing. Do you know when you sing in unity, your heart actually starts beating in unity? It's scientifically proven. My heart will beat in rhythm with yours when we are singing the same song. That's amazing, isn't it? Talking about unity. Talk about a sound of unity. Our hearts literally beating the same rhythm. Scientifically proven, okay? And so I love the prophetic song that comes forth. The prof- but the prophetic song that comes forth is different when it goes on and on and on. It's, it is itself like an oracle from the Lord. But that is different and has a place than the corporate prophetic song that comes forth that everybody can agree on and everybody can get in unity on. And I love how she did it tonight and so they're there in a similar sort of state in unity now it wasn't a wind that blew in to the upper room it was a sound like a wind but it was a sound that baptized them what would that look like to have a sound baptize you when I baptize people in water I just led a team to Israel with my wife and I baptized 22 people in the freezing waters of the Jordan in in Israel and I baptized them I dunked them they were fully immersed in the waters of the Jordan now what does it look like to be baptized in a sound fully immersed in a sound that means that every cell of their body was immersed in a sound every cell of their being do you know that when you boil down matter to its base form inside of it they used to think that the base form of matter was a quark something called a quark but now they've seen that inside a quark there is a sound wave so matter itself all created matter you can pick up a rock in the earth when you walk outside there's a sound inside that rock when when you understand that you understand why God spoke the worlds into existence the very voice of God spoke the worlds into existence do you know they've looked into the farthest reaches of space and in our universe and they've seen that the universe itself is still expanding see sound waves propagate and dissipate but they never go away the words of prayer you speak in this place never go away way the songs you sing in this place never go away and in fact matter actually absorbs sound in a very real sense and so when God spoke the worlds into existence that word went forth I don't actually have a problem with the big bang because God spoke and bang it happened bang there was life bang there was glory bang there was light Before the light of the sun and the moon, what was that light that was there before the light of the sun and the moon? God said, let there be light, and bang, there was light. But the sun and the moon weren't even created till several days of creation later. It was the light of glory. It was the very fire of creation, the very spark of creation. Was it like the electromagnetic spectrum crackling and burning in existence and in space? What was it like when God spoke, let there be light? But that same sound that God spoke into existence blew into the upper room and created a new movement and saturated them. They were baptized in a sound. 
And now what did this pillar of fire look like? Was it actually these tongues of fire? Was it actually the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness, a cloud by day, right, and a fire by night? What was it that appeared and blew in like a wave, like a rushing mighty wind, like a tornado? The word in the Greek means a sound like a tornado that blew into the upper room and literally divided out what is it, the very pillar of fire, that they would have known and understood as Jewish people from their history and from the stories that they heard at the Passover year after year after year? Was it the literal pillar of fire that came in and separated and rested on each and every one of them? I don't know, but just, I just want your imagination to go wild for a minute. Your sanctified imagination. Do you know we can imagine with God? We can dream with God? What did it look like to be baptized in a sound? To be baptized in fire? But this is what happened. It was organic. It was not institutional. And in fact, there was no precedent for it in the Torah that they were holding. That they would have been able to read. There was no precedent for this. There was no precedent for what was happening. Tongues of fire? Speaking in other languages, what was this? There was no precedent for it. And see, God is going to do something and actually is doing something in our day that we're not going to have language and precedent for, but we're going to have to move with the flame of God as the flame of God moves, just like the pillar of fire moved through the wilderness and the pillar of cloud moved. Are you ready to move with God? See, God said to Samuel, stop mourning for Saul. When will you get up, Samuel? When will you stop mourning for Saul, seeing I have rejected him as king over Israel? Saul still had the palace. He still had the power. He still had the wealth, the army, the riches. All David had was, was sheep in a field, and he wasn't even called to the table when the father called the other sons to the table to anoint them. And Samuel literally says, is this all the men? Is this all the sons you had? Well, there's the one in the field, right? Theologians, you know, have all kinds of theories about that. Was David born of an illegitimate relationship? Had a same father as the other sons of Jesse, but had a different mother? Psalm 51 sort of hints at that. Surely in sin my mother conceived me. You know, interesting when you think about it. Some of you, your lives, you think that your origin story disqualifies you from what God has called you. Your origin story does not disqualify you. And in fact, David then saw a beautiful woman as he was walking on a roof and had her son sent to, her husband sent to be killed. Okay? There is nothing God cannot bring you back from. Stop disqualifying yourself. I see, see, I'm a prophet. I see some of your thoughts, actually. Swir swirling around the room, you know, that like, oh, I'm, I'm left out of this. That person got a prophetic word and I didn't get a prophetic word because I'm just too bad or, or God doesn't like me or God doesn't love me. Just tell the devil to shut up. <laughs> tell the devil to stop because God has not disqualified you, okay? And so it was a sound. And in fact, when you go to Israel, the place where the upper room is, is actually over the tomb of King David. So when you think of the tabernacle of David being raised up in our day and in our time, it's a very interesting correlation that that same upper room is right over the tomb where King David rests and is laid to rest, okay? And so a sound baptized them. It's organic. It's not institutional. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, see, when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. 
What sounds like heaven to you might sound like confusion to the earth. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ferga, Pamphyla, Egypt, etc., Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And now the same ones in verse 5 that were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, the same ones from verse 5 that were, uh, that were intrigued by the sound are also the same ones in verse 13 where it said, but others mocking said they are full of new wine. They are full of new wine. Say, they were full of new wine. They were. They were absolutely true in what they were saying, but it was with a mocking spirit. See, the religious spirit will always mock the new move of God. Always. Always. It cannot understand it. It will always mock it because it's threatening. The move of God is threatening to the religious status quo. See, as human beings, we like to get into a rhythm. We like to get into the status quo. But God likes to break us out of the status quo. God likes to break all of our boxes and get us out of our comfort zones and into the place where his glory dwells. Every vision of God that I read about in Scripture, it's not a comfortable thing. Daniel sees a vision of a person with hair white like wool and eyes that burn like fire. And what does the Bible say? He fell at his feet as though dead, right? When God actually shows up, this flesh does some funny things. When God actually shows up, we feel so heavy sometimes that we fall over. We think, some of us, that these things are weird. Praying in tongues is weird. Falling out in the Spirit is weird. All this stuff. But just read the Bible. It's not weird. It's not weird at all. Most times when an angel or a, or a messenger or a heavenly encounter would happen, the person would fall down dead. What, what would that look like? It would look like getting slain in the spirit. Boom. You're down on the ground, right? I've been down on the ground and my whole life has changed. It's not the manifestation. It's the fruit that comes after the manifestation. I can, I can tell you that, okay? But he said they're full of new wine and that religious spirit, that spirit of soul is going to mock David's tabernacle that is rising up this family of God that is called in this hour to carry the new wineskin but Peter standing up from with the 11 raised his voice and said to them men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem let this be known to you and heed my words for these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day he's, he's basically I love to put things in modern vernacular you know bro how could they be drunk okay it's like super early, bro. Okay, that, way, that, didn't, that, didn't, uh, that didn't land. Where are the millennials, right? Wave at me if you're a millennial. Okay, not many millennials in here. Okay, no problem. So he says, it's only the third hour. How could they be drunk with wine? But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that 
that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He declares this is that. And friends, we need to declare in our day and in our time, this is that. This is that moment we have been called forth for. This is that moment that has been prophesied about. This is that moment that has been prayed for and birthed in intercession by people all over the world for years and years and years. This is that moment that God has called us to. And we need to stop saying that we're looking for it and hoping for it and that it's coming. We need to start declaring that it is here, just like Peter declared, this is that. We've got to declare this is that in our day. Are you with me? And it says, skipping down a few verses, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who were gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. See, part of what is happening in this new wine and new wineskin, when you put new wine into an old wineskin, there are gases in that new wine. It has not finished its fermentation completely, and there are gases in that new wine, that when you put it into an old wineskin that is brittle and is not stretchable or flexible like a new wineskin, the new wine releases those gases and all of a sudden, poof, it bursts. Think of even this place. What would happen if tomorrow 3,000 people were saved in this city? What would happen if tomorrow 3,000 people were added to the number of our Father's house? What would happen? We would be scrambling. We would be like, what am I supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? And we criticize ourselves for that. But what were the apostles experiencing? They were experiencing that same thing. They didn't know what to do. Let me tell you this. When revival comes, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do when God truly shows up and messes up your plans, but God is about to do that. And friends, if we have eyes to see afar off, what do you see in the future? See, because what you see is what you will get. What do you see for Avon? What do you see for this generation? Do you see this city? Do you see this generation burning in revival? Do you see this city set ablaze? Do you see this city transformed? Do you see this city burning for God? This generation burning for God? What do we see tonight? With whatever we see tonight, we need to plan accordingly for what we see because this is that hour that God has spoken of, okay? So 3,000 were added. Now, after that revival, after that release, there was the family element, and it says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So new wineskins, a family that births, stewards, and sustains the move of God, but that is fueled by genuine encounter fueled by genuine encounter. Jeremiah 23, verse 21. It says this, I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. We are living in an era, friends, where everybody has a voice. 
You know how they have a voice? Right here. They have a voice right here. They have a voice on Instagram. They have a voice on Facebook. They have a voice on YouTube. They have a voice on TikTok. They have a voice on Reddit. They have a voice on whatever, Parler, all these different ones that are coming out now. And everybody has a voice, and all these words are being spoken, and all of this, all of this sound is going forth. But in the midst of all of the voices, in the midst of all of the sound, where is the word of the Lord? See, I believe we live in a very similar season like Samuel came forth in, where it says that the word of the Lord in Samuel's day was rare, that there was not much open vision, not much open revelation. And it's very easy to take a word that God spoke 50 years ago or God spoke to somebody else, say John G. Lake or some other great person of God, Catherine Coleman, and build our lives on the word that God spoke to them. It's much easier to do that than it is to get in the face of God and get his word for our life. See, we have idolized the prophetic in our time. And I love the prophetic. I'm a prophet. I love the prophetic. I love to prophesy. I love to speak the word of the Lord. But we have replaced digging our own well in God for coming somewhere and getting a prophetic word and running from meeting to meeting, from place to place, from person to person, becoming like little groupies of different people, you know, Emma Stark and Anna Warner and Jeremiah Johnson, whoever it might be, going from meeting to meeting and place to place looking for a word of the Lord when God is saying, would you stop running? and get in my face get in my face how is this family going to carry forth what God has called them to carry forth and remember you are not a passive bystander you are an active participant in this revival this move that God is pouring out what he's pouring out in your region guys this is really amazing this is tremendous this is special what you're stewarding in this place I was hearing the heart of Paul as we were talking on the phone several weeks ago and he was saying to me man listen I have no idea what to do with what's happening but God is doing something. He kept using the word sovereign over and over again. And I believe that. Friends, I see this region ablaze with the fire of God. I see this region in full-blown, absolutely uncontrollable wildfire revival. That's what I see for this region. But friends, it'll be a whole lot easier for you to just float on somebody else's word than it is to get a word from the Lord yourself. What did it say in Jeremiah? I didn't send these prophets, yet they've run with their message. I didn't speak to them, yet they have prophesied. We need a generation that gets in the face of God ourselves, that digs our own well, that isn't looking for another person to lay hands on them, but that is looking to get in the face of God and get an impartation of the Holy Ghost themselves. See, friends, I can prophesy to you. I can lay hands on you. I can encourage you. I can speak the word of the Lord to you, but I cannot dig your well for you. Nobody can dig your well for you. Nobody can. You've got to get in the face of God yourself. God is looking for a personal relationship with you. He's looking to speak a personal word to you and for you to receive that word. Acts 19 and 11 talks about the sons of Sceva. 
See, they were using the name of Jesus. I won't take the time to read it, but they were using the name of Jesus. And they were even using the name of Paul, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they were casting out demons by that thing, by the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But see, they knew these sons. They knew the power of a name, but they were not acquainted with the person of the name. So many times in the body of Christ, we can know the power of a name, but not be acquainted with the person of the name. God wants you to get acquainted with him. God is looking for you. He is longing for you. He is calling you into the secret place. He is calling you into the place of intimacy. See, religion is acquainted with a name, but it's not acquainted with any power. And God is delivering us from every one of these systems of Saul, these systems of religion that are only acquainted with a name and with a system and with a pretense, but not not acquainted with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That word truth he used, it's aletheia in the Greek, and it means reality. He said, I am reality. Friends, what reality are we living in right now? We live in a time of false reality, virtual reality. What about kingdom reality? God is calling us to release kingdom reality on the earth. And see, I believe that there's a part of our psyche that has been deadened and dulled because of the overstimulation of the time that we live in. We live in a season in the earth where we can watch on a screen something that has been created through computer graphic imagery and all kinds of you know technological wizardry, something that they can create any picture on a screen that they want to show you and as you are filled with those pictures over and over and over again there's a part of your soul there's a part of your spirit that has stopped being hungry to see it for yourself to see the visions of heaven that God has for you that he wants to pour out to you that he wants to pour out over your life the dreams and the visions that are from God that are from your life and for this region that he wants to pour out we are so full that we don't even know how to be hungry anymore but God wants to make us hungry he wants to get us a heart change he wants to get us a heart transformation and move us into that place where it's about intimacy with the Lord everything coming out of the secret place see God is changing our value systems the Lord would say I value a just weight and measure. I saw one in Pastor Paul's office, this weight, this weight and balance where you put one thing on one side and it weighs down on the other side, right? See, God says, I love a just scale. I love a just weight and measure. And I'm telling you, God is looking for intimacy over productivity. Where once we valued a person for what they could do, now we're going to value a person just for who they are. For where once we valued a person for what they could give, now we're going to value each other just for who we are and just for our hearts. And that includes your leaders and pastors. It's not just those of us here that Pastor Paul and Taylor are leading. It's them as well. What do you value them for? Do you value them for what they can give you or do you value them for them? See, what's good for one is good for the other, right? And we are a family. When these things, when things are based on productivity, then comes jealousy, envy, competition, comparison, strife, and toil. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As they traveled along, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his message. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations 
that needed to be made. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen that good portion and it will not be taken away from her. Now that word necessary, what it means is what is absolutely necessary to sustain life. We have to evaluate our lives. See, either we're going to live out of a revelation of the hour or we're going to live out of a revelation of our current need, right? Each and every one of us have current needs. You have needs to put gas in your tank and food on your table. You have need to have money in your bank account. You have need to provide for your children. None of those are bad things, and I understand all of it. But either we're going to live out of a perspective of our current need, or we're going to live out of a perspective of eternity. Are we living for now or are we living for eternity? And there is a real place called eternity. There is a real place. If we could peel back the dry and gray raincoat of this earth and of this reality that we find ourselves in and look into that heavenly realm for just a moment where we would see elders and angels flying around the throne, casting down their crowns before the Lamb, crying out, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. If we could get a vision, a picture of that, even for a second, friends, even for a millisecond, the beauty of that place, the reality of that place would so pierce our hearts that we would never be satisfied again in our lives with just the status quo and just doing things as we've always done them. See, God is longing to peel back the, the, the raincoat from our eyes. God is longing to peel back what we see in front of our eyes and give us a picture of eternity. And he's saying you don't have to wait for heaven to live from eternity you can live from eternity now you can live every day in the perspective of eternity you can live every moment in the perspective of eternity we are a relational family and this relational family friends we can work and we can work really hard but in our working we will never toil See, what was the curse to Adam? Even in, the, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the curse to Adam, we think of it as the curse of work, right? We get up every morning and we say, man, my 9 to 5 job, I don't want to go to my 9 to 5 job. I don't want to flip burgers at McDonald's. I don't want to input data at my tech job or whatever it might be. I don't want to change tires at my mechanic place. I don't want to do what I want to do, right? But it wasn't work that was the curse. The curse that came to Adam is that he would bring forth fruit from the earth in toil in toil and in this season friends it's harvest season so we're going to work as a family and we're going to work really hard I'm not calling us to an intimacy that produces passivity an intimacy that produces passivity isn't true intimacy because you're not truly seeing the Lord if you're passive if you're truly seeing the Lord you're going to be passionate about what he is passionate about and when I'm passionate about what God is passionate about I can work and I can work hard and I can stay up late and get up early I can serve the kingdom of God but I'm never gonna do it from a place of toil 
I'm never going to do it connected to the curse of toil. And we don't have to do that as a family. We can work and work hard. We can accomplish amazing and great things for the glory of the Lord, but from a place of intimacy, valuing love, valuing relationship, valuing one another, not valuing productivity and putting a value on somebody according to what they produce. See, if my value is only according to what I produce, in a season where I'm producing, I am valued. But in a season where I can't produce what I produced in the past season, I'm no longer valued. That's an unjust scale, and the Lord detests it. The Lord wants to give us a just scale. And so we're going to move from intimacy, not for productivity. We're going to work hard, and we're going to work long, and we're going to do great exploits upon the earth. We're not going to be passive. We're going to be passionate, but we're never going to do it from the place of the curse of toil. Okay, we don't want to eat the bread of toil. That's Psalm 127. In vain you stay up late, in vain you rise up early eating the bread of toil. But it's the Lord. Unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And this is the Father's house. And we're going we're to work with the Lord, not toil in the midst of curse. Okay, now the fourth key, the supremacy of Christ, that nothing is held higher in value than the supremacy of Christ. I had a vision right before I was coming here. And I saw in this vision this person kneeling down in the muck and in the mire. It was like they were kneeling down in a swamp. And they were kneeling down in front of what looked like a gravestone or a headstone of a grave. And up above them, there was this perfect road, this perfect path that was beautiful. It looked ancient, but it was beautiful. There was no blade of grass between any stone on the cobblestone road. There was nothing out of repair. There was nothing broken. There was no part missing. It was a beautiful, pristine road, pristine path. But yet this person was below it in the muck and in the mire, and they were kneeling at what looked like a gravestone or a headstone. And I said, God, what is this? And he said, my people have kneeled down and worshipped at the altar of their culture, and they have missed the way of the kingdom completely. My people have kneeled down and worshipped at the altar of their culture, and they have missed the way of my kingdom completely. See, friends, we need unity. We need unity. And a unity that is based upon culture is never, ever going to happen. If I can only have unity with you if our culture agrees, or if I can only have unity with you if my doctrine perfectly agrees with your doctrine. See, like if I'm an Episcopal and you're a Presbyterian, or you're a Baptist and you're a Charismatic, or you're a Pentecostal Holiness and you're a Church of God in Christ and you're an AG and all these different denominations. See, is God coming back one day for the AG and the next day for the Church of God and the next day for the Baptist and the next day... For the Presbyterians, God is coming back for one body, and God loves his body. He loves his body. He's coming back for one unified bride. But unity based upon what we have been trying to do it based upon is impossible. It's never going to work. If I am kneeling down at the grave, the altar, the dead thing of my own culture and my own experience and my own context, I never can have unity and true unity with you. The only 
only way the body of Christ can have true unity, a unity that brings revival, a unity that brings reformation, a unity that brings this amazing billion soul harvest that we've been prophesying about for year after year, the only way that that can come is through the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything serves Him. Everything bows to Him. We cannot unify over anything else. And this is Colossians 1, verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross cross. Jesus is supreme. See, Paul, the writer of Colossians, was a citizen of Rome. When the Jewish leaders seized Paul, what did he say when they wanted to abuse him and mistreat him? What did he say? I appeal to Caesar because he was a citizen of Rome. As a citizen of Rome, Paul would have understood the context of many Roman things. And in Colossians Chapter 2, it talks about how literally the law, the written code that was against us and that stood opposed to us, that God took it away, nailing it to the cross and disarming powers and principalities. He made a public spectacle of them when Jesus triumphed over them. Now the Romans, when they would go into a region and they would conquer a region, they would take the leader of that region before them in the city square. They would gather all the people in the city square and before everybody, they would take their crown, they would take their scepter, they would strip off their royal robe, whatever it was that signified their authority, and then they would tie them to the back of horses, and they would drag them through the city square and streets, so everybody knew this person, your ruler, your leader, is not in charge anymore. The Roman Empire is now in charge. Now, when Paul wrote, having disarmed powers and principalities, talking about the supremacy of Christ, when Paul wrote, wrote that, essentially what he was saying when Jesus rose from the dead, he tied the devil and all his demons, every power, every principality, every ruler in the unseen realm to the back of cosmic horses and paraded them through the galaxy to every name that is named, everything that is seen and unseen. He paraded them through the galaxy and drug them around Saturn and Uranus. He drug them around Mars. He drug them through galaxies that you and I don't even know and don't even see and to all of heaven and all the earth and every dimension known or unknown and every realm known or unknown he said I am supreme I put my foot on the neck of the enemy and I am king of kings I am lord of lords I am alpha and omega beginning and the end Christ is supreme now you and I can unify around that you and I are not going to unify around, hey, what's your eschatology? 
What do you believe about the end times, friends? I'm pan-trib. It's all going to pan out in the end, okay? You know, I don't have it all figured out. You don't have it all figured out. The smartest theologians in the world don't have it all figured out. And in this season, as God raises up the tabernacle of David, as God unifies his body, there are people who are going to come through these doors. There are people God's going to call you to work with in this region that are going to offend your mind and offend your flesh. Are you going to work with them anyway? Is it one body or is it us and them? We've got to get past this us and them mentality. We cannot be a family that births, stewards, and sustains the move of God in regions all over the world because this is one of many regions that God is visiting right now. There's Asbury. There's Pasadena, California. There's here in Avon. There's Brazil. There's Jerusalem. When I was in Jerusalem, friends, spontaneous tongues broke out in the upper room. A group from Brazil, our group from many different states in America, a group from Honduras, a group from Nigeria. We all started shouting in tongues. It was this amazing release of glory. It was like having revival in the upper room. I've been to Israel 21 times and have never encountered anything like that. God is up to something. We're in a season of revival. And in a season of revival, God will offend your mind to get to your heart. And he wants to get to the heart of things. And as I close, keeping the edge not finding the comfort zone. Friends, are you willing to live on the edge? And this is my invitation for you as we close tonight. Are you willing to live on the edge? A blunt sword cuts nothing. And we have been using blunt swords to try to pierce and penetrate realms of darkness in our cities for year after year after year. And we look at each other and we're like, why isn't it working? You know, why isn't anybody getting saved? Why isn't anybody coming to the Lord? Why isn't anything changing? Why are the impoverished still impoverished? Why are the addicted still addicted? Why are the marriages still messed up? Why? Because we are not sharp. Because we're not living on the edge. Because we've got one foot in the kingdom and we've got one foot in Netflix. We've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in our comfort. We've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in what we want. We've got one foot in sowing into the kingdom and tithing and giving and all of that. And one foot in, well, you know, I really wanted to do this. I really wanted this new Mac. I really wanted whatever. We're not sold out. We're not. We're not sold out. What did Acts chapter 2 say? It said they continued daily. Daily. Friends, it feels laborious to us to get to church once a week. It feels laborious to us when God calls us to come to a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Man, I was at church all weekend, bro. I don't know about you, man. That was, that was too much, you know? What about every day living in the flame of God? Every day, friends, get a vision for what your life can look like. Get a vision for what this place can look like. Get a vision for this community. What if you met for coffee every morning and took over the coffee shop every morning? From 6 to 7 before you went to work? What if you, what if you met up after work from 5 to 7 and, and had a Bible study and, and the entire community began to be transformed because you refused to let Christianity for you be about a weekly ritual? You refused to let Christianity for you be about, you know, just enough, but you were willing to live on the edge and actually give everything. 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 The Moravians, they were a community led by, by Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Say that ten times fast. 
In a place, <laughs> exactly, in a place called Herrenhut, Germany. Herren is the Lord and Hütter or Hütter is watch. The watch of the Lord. That's what Herrenhut means. And they had a hundred year prayer meeting in Herrenhut that never stopped. And they founded and funded and fueled a modern missions movement. The modern missions movement that we know really has its origin, its roots in the Moravian movement in Herrenhut, Germany. A hundred year prayer meeting that fueled this movement. There are literally account after account, story after story of people being willing to sell themselves into slavery to preach the gospel to unreached people groups. That there was this unreached people group that they found out about and the only way that they could go and be a part of that community and preach the gospel to that community was to become one of them and to sell themselves into slavery. And so there they are on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean selling themselves into slavery, looking at their wife and their children or their husband because it wasn't just men that did this, it was women too, or their husband and children sailing away from their family never to see them again and they didn't shed tears, friends. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. They didn't say, oh, woe is me. They got down on their knees and they lifted their hands and they said, let the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. Let the Lamb of God receive what He came to do, the reward of His suffering, the reward of His sacrifice, the reward of who He is, the reward of the Lamb. Friends, we need to see that kind of resolve in our day and in our time. And it's got to be more than just a good meeting. It's got to be more than me just whipping you into some emotional frenzy for a moment on a Friday night. There's got to be something living fire that comes into the deepest parts of our heart and of our soul and changes us from the inside out. And I'm not preaching at you. This is me too. I want to live on the edge in a greater way. I don't want to settle for complacency. See, human nature is like this. You're in a marathon, right? What are you thinking about? When is this going to be over? You're lifting weights. You're lifting those weights for the outcome. You're not lifting those weights enjoying what you're actually doing. At least most people don't. Most people don't run 13.1 miles or 26.2 miles, the little bumper sticker they got in the back of their car. Most people don't do that and enjoy the process. Yeah. Emaciated and dehydrated and running and feeling like you can't breathe and all of that. Most people don't do that for the fun of it. They do it for what comes after. They're not enjoying it in the meantime. And friends, when we go through trials and testings and challenges, we don't enjoy it as we're going through it, our mindset is getting past it, getting through it, see? But God never wastes a trial. He never wastes a trial in your life. And in fact, Jacob is an example for us in this, that when morning came and this person, this being, Theophany, Christophany, however you want to look at it, that wrestled with Jacob all night said, let me go, because Jacob was holding on to him. Let me go. Jacob at that moment could have said, my fight is over. My wrestle is over. Hallelujah. I got through it. And that's what we do. Man, I just want to get through this trial. I want to get through this test. I want to get through this challenge and difficulty. But what did Jacob say? He held on and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That word, it literally means change me. 
I will not let you go until you change me. I won't let you go until I'm different. God's looking for a few people because it's never the many. It's always the few. It's always the remnant. But I believe I could be in a room tonight full of the remnant. I believe I could be in a church full of the remnant. God is looking for people, not the smartest, not the most qualified, not the most together, not the most religious, not the most well-studied. God is looking for a people who will simply do one thing, and that is say, yes, 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 Lord. Could we have the worship team come? Are you willing to live on the edge, or are you so addicted to comfort that you can't see more than two feet in front of you. See, if I put my hand in front of somebody's face like this, what are they seeing? They're seeing the hand. That's all they're seeing. They're not even seeing what's connected to the hand. They can't even see the color of my eyes or the color of my shirt or what I'm wearing or whatever because all they see is what's in front of their face. And many of us, we live our lives like that. We live our lives with what's in front of our face, the need that's in front of our face. But God is saying, will you move that thing out from your vision and live for eternity? Will you say yes to me? Will you say yes tonight? Friends, tonight can be a night that changes your life. Tonight can be a night that it was like for me. I was headed down a very wrong path. I'm a miracle. It's a miracle I'm even here right now. I was headed down a very wrong path. I won't take the time to get into it. I was going to do something one night after worship practice because I still wanted to keep up appearances. And I play many instruments, so I was at worship practice. That night I was playing drums to keep up appearances for my pastor, for my parents. But after that, I was going to go do something stupid, which I won't get into, which probably would have changed my life negatively forever. Landed me in prison, gotten me killed, whatever it might be, something stupid. And in the midst of that stupidity, the Lord broke in. This little lady who was the worship leader at the time said, can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? And I said, whatever, sure. Didn't expect anything to happen. Long story short, Lee, she laid hands on me. It was like somebody threw me across the room and an elephant was sitting on my chest. I couldn't get off the ground. I started crying. I started praying in tongues. My whole body started burning with fire. What's the point? The point is one moment of the glory changed me forever. One moment. And friends, this altar, an altar is a consecrated place. And one moment at an altar, a consecrated place, can change us forever. When one of us gets on fire, the other of us can get on fire. Because when you've got a coal that's next to another coal, that coal is going to get hotter because it's next to another coal. That's what I feel with Paul. That's what I feel with Pastor Michael and Judy. That's what I feel with my friends Cody and Lindsay who drove all the way from Michigan. Used to pastor them. Used to have the honor to pastor them. Their brother Austin, who's a prophet. And Cody, who's a prophet. And Lindsay is going to Israel with my wife. They're burning ones. But see, when burning ones get near one another, and all it takes is a little... It's all it takes. And what happens? Those burning ones burst into flame. Friends, if you're a living coal tonight, and you want the wind of the Spirit to blow on you, I want you to run to this altar. If you're a living coal tonight, and you're looking, you say, Lord, I want your spirit to blow on me tonight. 
I want your spirit to set me ablaze. I don't want to live in the status quo. I don't want to live in just enough. I don't want to live in yesterday's manna or yesterday's word or someone else's word or someone else's promise. I want to know you for myself. I want to be set ablaze tonight. I don't ever want to be the same. And even if you weren't the same last week when you came to this altar, God wants to take you from glory to glory, from faith to faith, from strength to strength and encounter you in such a way with His living flame that you'd never be the same. I'm going to Croatia tomorrow. A couple of years ago when I was in Croatia, we were in a revival meeting just like this and a skinhead came in. This guy was at least six foot six or seven. He came in, he wanted to fight, he wanted to mess things up. I said, God, what do I do? God said, go lay your hands on him. I said, God, I can't even reach his head. You want me to lay hands on him? He said, go lay hands on him. I laid hands on this guy, he fell down. He got up, he wanted to fight me. I laid hands on him again, he fell down. He got up the next time weeping and repenting and crying. One touch from the glory. One touch from the presence of God can change everything. One touch from the glory can circumcise those parts of your heart, those parts of your soul, your personality. That you say, God, I've tried to get free of this for years. I just can't get free of this. One touch from God can cut it away. One touch from God can set you free. One touch from God. One touch from the glory. Who's hungry for the glory? Who's hungry for the presence? Who's hungry for the living flame of God? You want to be changed. You want to be altered to the point where you can never go back to who you were and what you were. You want to encounter the glory so strong, so thick, that literally you wake up tomorrow morning, you don't even recognize yourself in the mirror because you're that changed and transformed. God can do it. Just begin to cry out to the Lord. Just begin to say yes to God. Just begin to say, here I am, Lord. Like Isaiah said, here I am, God. Here I am, send me. Cry out to the Lord. Don't wait for someone to lay hands on you. Don't wait for someone to prophesy to you. Don't wait for someone to engage God for you. You engage God yourself right now. Dig your well in God. Let's begin to worship. the fire of the Holy 